All right, let's get this thing started. Good morning to everybody from sunny, rainy South Florida. Hope everybody's having a wonderful day wherever you are. Um, realize lots of people aren't in the United States, around the world, different time zones. Morning to Emil, our co-host here today, uh, whose idea, uh, this was his idea for Twitter Spaces. So credit to Emil for putting this together. Though, as I said to him as we were discussing this, I'm not really sure we'll have anything to talk about. It'll probably just be minute upon minute of dead air because there's really nothing going on in the world that's worth discussing, is there? With that said, um, why don't we open it up? If anybody has any questions, any ideas on us to go over, you know, let, let's let's get this started. Hi, Jeff. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I do a YouTube show with you uh, for the last couple of years. You may have noticed. I don't know if you have, but more importantly, I was uh, reading the Financial Times today, and Martin Wolf the longtime columnist, had a very cheery article about the apocalypse. He wrote, quote, This war follows pestilence and threatens famine. Together these are the three of Ezekiel's four disastrous judgments of the Lord. Alas, the fourth, death, follows from the other three. I thought it was positively uplifting and wonderful. <laughs> but more interestingly, I think for the audience, there was a fascinating chart in there that showed CPI inflation or CPI increases between December 2020 and December 2021 for the United States, Europe, and other advanced economies. And they broke it down by energy, food, and other. Now, for Europe and other advanced economies, it's all energy and all food and a sliver of other. So all CPI increases for Europe and advanced economies, energy and food. For the U.S., it's roughly speaking, U.S. is 40% energy, a tiny sliver, 10% of food, and then the lion's share is other, other. I think people would be surprised to know that other advanced economies are not experiencing the same sort of consumer price increases that the United States is, and you could think of many reasons why energy and food prices are up, but why in the United States are we experiencing this increase in prices to other? I wonder how much of that, I'm sure they probably didn't break it down, Emil, but the, how much of that is um, used, in news, used in new cars? Because if you look at the contribution from the CPI in the United States, a healthy dose of it is from new and used cars. In fact, a, a big chunk of it, is, as we've talked about before, is because of the shortage of, of available vehicles, which has pushed everybody into buying used cars at a ridiculous rate. So I wonder, you know, how much of that, why isn't that much of a bigger factor around the rest of the world? Uh, energy, commodity prices, those things make sense, especially in Europe, of course, more recently too. But um, is the fact that the U.S. is more of a, um, you know, the, the last year defined by its logistical problems, the trouble shipping goods, the goods are there, as we're seeing in the inventory numbers. I mean, today that we got more inventory numbers, advanced uh, retail and wholesale inventories that were again near record highs. So the goods are there. They're just easily moved around, which I think speaks a lot to the idiosyncrasies of the U.S. logistical system rather than the rest of the world. I got another question. This one from the audience from Twitter. This one is from at no mandate forever goes by Thermidor. <laughs> And uh, let's see, the question was a very simple one. What do we do with a store of dollars in the meantime? And this was in reference to dollar control, petrodollar, the euro dollar, and all the... I guess this is an investment advice question, Jeff. Jeff, what is the sequ what's the silver bullet? Is there a silver bullet? Because <laughs> that's the the trillion or multi-trillion dollar question. It's, it's actually a question that um, the euro dollar system itself has been struggling with ever since its inception. 
In fact, that's one of the unique features of the system is that it divorced the medium of exchange into store value from store value and offshore, literally offshore the store value function into financial securities. And mostly the euro dollar system's answer to store value has been liquid instruments like U.S. Treasuries. Although there was that, that little period in the 90s and middle 2000s, store of value was uh well, the function was given to things like private label subprime mortgage bonds and things like that. But by and large, they're financial instruments. But if we're thinking about it in terms of individual investments, that's a much, much trickier proposition because obviously individuals don't have the same sort of reach or the same sort of opportunities available to them that the large behemoth banks do which they've essentially given themselves by being in the center of the, of the global monetary marketplace. And I'm really reluctant to answer that question with much specificity, given the fact that I'm a registered investment advisor and dispensing investment advice over social media is a, is a really, really bad idea. But by and large, there are ways to think about investing in this type of environment, whether you think it's inflationary or not. Inflationary in the in the quote unquote context of consumer prices. I mean, commodity commodity prices might be something to consider, given their supply demand dynamics, as well as you know other things that are more uh, other asset classes that are more traditionally def deflationary or disinflationary hedges. Jeff, if you want to ask the audience for a question, that's perfectly cool. But I've got one more. I've got hundreds more, actually. But yes, anybody in. in the audience, anybody has any questions, just let us know. That's what we're here for, to answer as many as we can. I've got another one. Again, Twitter from at Igor Bezel. Hi, Jeff. Lots of people now say the yuan may become the world currency instead of the dollar. Thanks to you, we know that is not true. But... <laughs> What if we imagine this euro yuan futures derivatives, a yuan ledger, it would lead to an offshore exchange rate, etc. China should be afraid to death of this, isn't it? Jeff, does China want to be the currency? Does any country other than Britain, perhaps Germany, Japan, do they want to be the global reserve currency? If be. Well, specifically China, they they kind of dabbled in an offshore yuan. There was the, the Hong Kong offshore yuan market that they developed uh, many years ago. And then they just – it never took off because the PBOC and the communist authorities over there did not want to take the shackles off. They sort of wanted to have their yuan cake and eat it too, which meant that they were, okay, we realize we need some kind of offshore monetary system challenge the dollar – but not willing to actually let it be a private system really needs to be. And so the Hong Kong offshore yuan market just essentially dried up and died. It really isn't much of a marketplace anymore, which was a tacit acknowledgement from Chinese authorities. They're not really in the reserve currency business. They're not really in the, in they're not really interested in the reserve currency business, at least um, so far as fulfilling the roles of a reserve currency as they need to be and instead have been focused more on managing their own dollar problems through micro scale arrangements uh you know the belt and road initiative and essentially trying to produce bilateral trade agreements with individual nations rather than trying to recreate the euro dollar it's a basically hey let's just let's do um, a fragmentation or fragmented uh, market share for yuan wherever possible so rather than a shotgun approach more of a rifle shot approach the individual circumstances and individual nations where where the opportunity arises so the offshore yuan never took off i mean i think it's for a couple of reasons but they at least they at least tried it for a while there before really giving up on it and i don't think that the chinese really want have any interest in a reserve currency that is specifically their own national currency. I think they would sign up for an international currency that wasn't that isn't specifically tied to a single national monetary policy or a single national reserve currency, or even this private uh, bank-centered base system as that is, exists currently. So China's kind of in a pickle here, and I understand why people think that the Chinese are trying to or wiggle their way into the predominant position because. In other arenas like politics, they're certainly doing that, but uh, it's a whole different animal when you get into the uh, monetary system and the functions that need to be undertaken that need to be reliable and predictable in order to create a, a true reserve currency or competing reserve currency system.
how about we go to some callers? We got three lines that are on right now. Let's go to line one, Jeff. Okay. I'll let you operate the board. <laughs> I'm trying. That's, that's the thing about this newfangled technology. <clears throat> trying to figure out how to do it. I really want to say, caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? Caller on the air. Anybody, let me invite some people to speak and see what happens. All right. Well, I've got another question then, Jeff, if you're still working on it. Yeah, why don't we do another question and see what happens. Okay, Jeff, this one comes from Cristiano Vitali. Yes, at Cristiano underscore 2803. And he says, Jeff, you often write that bank reserves have very little value in the United States, Japan, Europe, but some in China. In fact, they're very important in China. You can see the confusion, Jeff. Why Why the difference? Because it's a different system. No, and I understand that it, it absolutely is confusing because you say bankers' dollar system don't really mean anything. They're not really they're not, they're basically a store function for banks in the post crisis QE era. Have really no role whatsoever as a medium of exchange. Whereas in China, they use very differently because it's a very top heavy structure. It's very um, limited and very narrow. So it's basically perfectly set up for the use of bank reserves as more than just an interbank token. They're actually used between uh, um, commercial banks. We're not really private banks. They're state-owned, but commercial banks in the Chinese system, which doesn't have quite the developed wholesale network that developed, of course, around the euro dollar system around the world many, 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 starting many, many, many decades ago. So in many respects, the Chinese are sort of – they kind of moved in the direction of a wholesale system um, in the middle 2000s and then again really in the in the aftermath of the, of the global financial crisis. But that sort of kind of dried up too, sort of like the offshore yuan. The Chinese said, you know, maybe it's not a really good idea to emulate everything about the Western uh, monetary and financial system because it doesn't seem to be working very well. So any moves that the Chinese financial system had made toward a more Western-style, wholesale-oriented, uh, more non-bank, non-traditional banking type of arrangement, that's, that's kind of been at least halted, if not, if not reversed to some degree, over the last, say, seven, eight years, really since the, 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 uh, what we call Eurodollar three crisis erupted in around 2013-2014. So in many respects... The Chinese financial system is more like you know a nineteen twenty style depository based system that we we would recognize or be familiar with in the United States. I'm not saying it's primitive because it, it's 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 very complex and it's very uh, it's, it's, it's in many respects it's still a modern system, but it's not it it doesn't have sort of the uh, the uh, euro dollar flair and flaw and flaws to it. And so bank reserves have a much, much, much greater and more important place in China, whereas in the United States, or at least in the euro dollar world, it developed over many decades without using bank reserves and sort of grew itself away from the Federal Reserve, whereas the Chinese banking system is, is, is never going to get away from the People's Bank of China. Any questions? As far as I can tell, I don't see anybody's with questions. Oh, yeah? Really? Okay, let me. There we go. It's on the air. Caller, you're on there. Where are you from? Yeah. yeah. So, hey, guys. Um, long time listener. Long Hello. time listener. First time caller. Love you guys. Um, Oh, I love you too, Andrew. I love that long time, first time, old style radio. Talk. Yeah, man. And so um, I just had a uh, question about Fed funds and how the Fed funds rate impacts the euro dollar market, um, if at all. And I also have some follow up questions um, as well. 
Sure, the federal funds system and the federal funds rate in particular, the effective rate is sort of a reflection of that narrow slice of the global money marketplace. And it really has a lot more, a lot to do with um, banks managing their regulatory requirements as far as reserves and things like that, rather than actual useful money in the, in the, in the wider system. Even before the, the 2008 crisis, back before August of 2007, um, the federal funds market itself had been a sort of a liability management market rather than strictly a funding market, which is more where the euro dollar came in. But the Federal Reserve, the federal funds market, because it was sort of a, you know, a, a, a quasi money market that was, uh, you know, functional, it was useful for certain certain uh, financial institutions. It, it represented sort of an arbitrage opportunity for the rest of the euro dollar system. Therefore, the Federal Reserve sort of leveraged that arbitrage you, you know, opportunity by create by moving the federal funds target around. They they sort of influenced all the rest of the interest rates around the rest of the world, including uh, things like LIBOR, because of the arbitrage that dealer banks had, had would engage in making sure that there was never any real spread between, say, for example, federal funds and, and overnight LIBOR. But once the uh, dealers started to run into trouble around August 9th of 2007, that's leverage disappeared, as did federal funds themselves, because nowadays there's really much, nobody in, in it, nor is there... Um, nor is there much interest in resurrecting the federal funds market because everything has become collateralized. Essentially, everything is either repo or derivatives nowadays. So the federal funds market is sort of an arcane, archaic uh, historical device that the Federal Reserve continues to use for the sole reason that they're afraid that if they, go, they move to some other reference rate that's actually more relevant to the worldwide system, that it'll confuse the public. The public won't be able to easily understand what the Fed wants them to understand. Because remember, this is an expectations-based policy. And so there was an enormous Federal uh, Federal Reserve debate and argument way back um, was 2013, 2014, the Alternative Rate Reference Committee, all that stuff, uh, when they started debating about going to SOFR, whether or not they should use a repo rate as their primary communications tool. It was really all about that. How do we communicate monetary policy to the public? Not, not, not how do we influence money, but how do we communicate policy? So if the Fed wants to communicate that it's being stimulative, doesn't actually be stimulative. It just communicates that through a rate cut. Or as in today, it communicates to the public that it's being a is instituting a tightening policy by doing a rate hike. And so the argument was if they move away from the federal funds rate because the world a long time ago, that the public that they'll lose some of their power to influence expectations because people aren't familiar with something other than the federal funds rate. So that's a long way of answering the question, which is the federal funds market itself really doesn't mean much nowadays. And the only reason it does mean anything to anybody is because we're told we have to believe in the Fed and the Fed. That's where the Fed, that's their their primary communication tool. Um, excellent. Uh, thank you so much for that uh, uh, in, in-depth uh, explanation. Uh, I guess I guess really my second question and my last question is, uh, with the uh, rise in interest rates here um, and the, the Dixie uh, creeping up and up and up um, at uh, kind of an alarming rate, I would say, um, do you see this uh, becoming a potential uh, liquidity crisis for the euro dollar uh, market? Um, and then uh, if you could just comment on the slight backwardation in um, your, the euro dollar futures market as well, that'd be great. Jeff, we can't have people asking three questions. One question per caller. <clears throat> and I think uh, the liquidity crisis is in progress. It's just not acute. But go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I, look, the, the, the issue of the dollar, uh, the fact that the dollar is higher and, in fact, it, it, it continues to go higher is already itself a, a, a worrisome sign. And if you use strictly DXY or Dixie, then, you know, yeah, that, that's a heavy allocation to the do, to the euro, excuse me, which, I mean, it's almost all based on the euro. So 
But in this case, over the last several weeks in particular, it hasn't just been the euro that's been moving. Obviously, Chinese yuan going back to February 28th, as well as any number of currencies, including some of the formerly stronger current emerging markets, the commodity heavy currencies that had sort of weathered the, la- the first couple months of 2022, seemingly in favorable fashion. So it seems like the entire dollar system is sort of turned. And when it turned, it seemed to have really accelerated in that same window between February 28th, March 1st, and then, you know, yield curve inversion and all those things that happened around the middle of March and toward the end of March. So as Emil said, you know, there's definitely something going on as far as tightening liquidity. Um, You can say that's related to fears over Russia, Ukraine, or, you know, something else, the coronavirus in China, Shanghai lockdowns, any number of things, regardless of whatever reason you assign to it, what's pretty clear is that something is leading to risk aversion, which is manifesting in any number of ways in broad fashion, which is always the last thing you want to see. It's one thing if it's, uh, again, if it's just one thing or another that goes wrong or one thing or another that that's um, signaling that there's a potential issue. But when it's a lot of things at the same time moving in accelerating fashion, that's sort of a key signal that something something serious is, is going wrong. And then there's any number of of factors that we could consider along the same lines, not just the dollar rising, but also the fact that um, uh, you see collateral indications, repo fails up at March 2020 levels. Uh, They were down uh, the week before, but still relatively high. Um, T-bill prices that are unusually low, even though interest rates are rising. The the four-week T-bill at, you know, what is it, 30-some-odd basis, 36 basis points right now. And at 80, you know, that kind of thing. So there's there's any number of indications that tell us that the, the global monetary system has tightened up a considerable amount, which we knew. I mean, you could see this coming from late from last year. Any number of indications that have said r- growing risk aversion, growing collateral shortage, uh, dollar rising, any uh, all sorts of financial indications, as well as economic consequences that arise from them. So it's not strictly Russia, Ukraine. Those are just sort of weighing on what was already a fragile and weakened system to begin with. And it may have just accelerated or tipped it over into the more acute phase. I don't think it's 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 especially acute at the current time, but it's that we're definitely moving in the wrong direction. And in some ways, we're moving in the wrong directions relatively quickly. Speaking of liquidity crises, this question comes to us from... Rana Mala on Twitter, at Rana Mala. She's in economics in Britain right now. And she asked, what is a liquidity crisis? Is it characterized by increased demand for higher forms of money, like deposits, for example, or is it characterized by less liquid assets losing their value in fire sales? And yes, she used the letter S when spelling characterized. So she's definitely in Britain. <laughs> That's awesome. What? Yeah. What do we mean by liquidity crisis? And then there's a difference between liquidity problems in the financial economy versus the real economy. And the real economy is much more important because money is supposed to be a tool to engage in commerce. Whereas in a financial economy, sort of store of value, future commerce, investing, that kind of a situation, um, which is where usually liquidity problems manifest first. They sort of start with the financial economy and then spread out from there because that's really where most of the financial or where most of the system is focused upon. And really, um, the distinction between convertibility into some higher form of money, that doesn't happen because there is no higher form of money. It's sort of uh, democratized in the respect that balance sheet considerations don't don't necessarily prioritize one for the, one for another it's not like we're converting deposit balances into physical stores of cash or actual or gold coins so when the euro dollar market breaks down in, in terms of liquidity it's really about where do you go uh, when you're shut out from, example, for example, from a repo market. If you don't have enough collateral, you can't go into repo. What is your next recourse? It's to find some other to secure some other form of funding, which then has a knock-on effect in other marketplaces. So if you have a collateral shortage where it becomes difficult to borrow in repo, then you might try some other form of, of you know, whether it's a, a, a derivative exchange or some other some other type of uh, arrangement 
it creates these bottlenecks in the financial economy that then spread into the real economy and become the, the real danger, which is what we're all really trying to avoid. And the symptoms of that are, as, as the questioner pointed out, things like fire sale assets, which, I mean, that's how that's that's really the agent of contagion, because when you have marketplaces that become illiquid, nobody wants to buy, for example, junk corporate bonds, but junk corporate bonds are used monetarily as collateral in certain collateral chains and transformations, then fire sales and liquidations in junk markets then spread to not uh, to uh, liquidity problems that are way beyond simply the junk market, because it, um, in one respect, without convertibility, the entire global mon monetary system can be that fragile because there is no North Star to, upon which to base everything on. It's really just a, a series of relative financial transactions and options for transactions, balance sheet building that... Um, that when things go wrong, what we've seen is that because they're utterly dependent upon dealers to make markets and to make us and to keep things steady, when the dealers decide they want to be risk averse, it doesn't really matter which market or which which financial sector we're talking about. It all becomes a big problem. All right. We have another request for from Ken. Ken, if you want to go ahead and ask the question. I feel like I should tell people to turn down the radio in the background. You remember that, Jeff? People used to call on. The radio was on in the background. They forgot that there was a seven-second delay. All right, there you go, Ken. It looked like you had yes. it on. Sorry, get the feedback. <laughs> Sorry about that, there guys. That's okay. Thanks for taking my call. Um, just wondering if can the Fed fight inflation with negative real rates and how? Well, since uh, you know this isn't actually in, I'll use the term monetary inflation. I don't see how interest rates are going to get more oil up out of the ground or create semiconductor chips or move containers off of the West Coast ports and into China where they belong. Um, so it's really what we're really talking about in that situation is more of a psychological effect. So can the Fed influence enough people's behavior so that they believe that the economy is being tightened and therefore they begin to act as if the uh, there's some kind of tightening? And so maybe the, the, the uh, raising of interest rates has the effect where, oh, Maybe some auto dealers decide they're going to order fewer cars because they can't get them anyway, and so they won't bother uh, won't bother ordering fewer cars, and the inventory is starting to flow as it is. Or as we've seen in the oil sector, maybe some oil producers decide, well, we were on the fence about drilling more wells to begin with, believe in the Fed, therefore the Fed's tightening. So those wells we were going to drill, we're not going to drill them anymore because we believe the Fed is actually tightening the economy. So it's really not necessarily a direct you know, monetary or economic uh, effect so much as it is can the Fed influence behavior. And I'm, of course, obviously skeptical about that. In fact, I don't think they really influence much behavior at all. And I think that's why markets have behaved as they are, because I don't believe the vast majority of the financial and monetary system believes much in the Fed either, which is why, despite all the rate hike rhetoric, um, you see yield curves invert and the market essentially bet against the Fed's rate reasoning. Okay, while you pick out another person to speak, Jeff, this is not so much a question as a comment, and it comes from someone called Hugh Hendry Eclectica. What a strange name. Jeff and Emil have undergone some really weird transformation. Jeff from studious librarian to Jesus sandals and hippie, <laughs> counter-movement guys. And Emil, well, Emil is a different kettle of fish altogether. I don't know. It sounds like a bot. It sounds completely made up. Have we got another caller, Jeff? Nope. Nobody wants to ask questions, which is fine. I think we can just uh, continue to call or continue to talk about uh, any number of things. 
I see 14, 16 requests. You don't see that on your, your I phone? don't. No. Okay. I have zero, zero requests. Let me go to, uh, let's see, can I find Tom? Tom was there a second ago. Tom Hartman, there he is. Let's see if I can do this. Add as so, speaker. Everybody wants, see, that's, the th that's what's going on here. Everybody wants to talk to you, Emil. Improbable. Hello, Tom. I'm, yeah, uh, I'm putting Tom on the... Tom, where are you calling from? I'm from Montreal. Uh, my wife and I love your show. It's, it's fantastic. Um, Bienvenue. <laughs> uh, I did a uh, sentiment. Um, you were just talking about expectations of policy from the Fed, and um, and you often talk on, on, the, on your show about uh, survey data. And um, I found it very useful to use the uh, NFC, the, the National Financial Conditions Index, as a predictor for what's going on, um, what's the state of uh, liquidity in the market in any given time. And I'm wondering if you have any other sort of sentiment indicators or surveys that you would point to that you find to be very useful or even um, other like FinTwit people that you use as a reference as a, as a sentiment indicator. Are you talking about specifically uh, economic sentiment or market sentiment or something uh, else? Specifically things that address um, the, the amount of uh, money flowing around the system, the amount of credit available, leverage, uh, just to be able to identify when there's weaknesses within uh, the market that an exogenous shock might then exacerbate. Yeah, that's always been the big challenge. The idea, the, the fact that we don't have a whole lot of data. In fact, we have very limited data, and we're stuck using, in terms of data, uh, specific proxies. You know, things like tick, some of the Chinese, you know, the Chinese uh, central bank balance sheet, things like that, to get a sense of what's actually going on in the monetary system. Kind of leaves us with just market prices and interpreting the way the market is seems to be moving. In doing a broad survey of, you know, asset classes and asset prices and things like that. Uh, and what you're really talking about is the fact that there is no um, comprehensive data set that we can just look at and say, okay, here's here's a dashboard of all the most important uh, uh, financial indicators. And one big uh, one key reason why we don't have that is number one. Well, there's a couple key reasons. Number one, um, the uh, authorities, monetary policymakers, central bankers don't want it. They want you to believe that they have full control when they absolutely don't. And the other reason is that because this is a bank's global bank-centered system, the banks don't really want to share their data. They don't really want to tell people what's going on. In fact, when the Fed switched its main call reporting to monthly rather than quarterly, they raised holy hell about it. They don't really want to disclose what it is they're doing, obviously, because most of the stuff that they do is off-balance sheet anyway. So it's really difficult, if not impossible, under the current arrangement to really say, here is the definitive answer to what is actually happening in the system. What we can do is look at market prices, movements, and behaviors and sort of work backward from there, sprinkling in a, a little bit of the data that we do have that we think has been um, validated historically as a decent enough proxy. Even as Emil and I were talking about recently with repo, repo fails. And the repo fails data that we have is simply only uh, what the primary dealers are forced to provide on a weekly basis to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, leaving the vast majority of the repo system, or at least the majority of the repo system, if there's an argument about how much, um, completely uncovered. So even if we see, if we see a huge spike in fails in uh, the primary dealers reporting, that doesn't mean there was one in the whole entire uh, repo system. Though we're we're probably um, safe in assuming that there would be something like that. So it's really it's really about lack of data, and because we don't have a lack because we don't have the data, even something like sentimental or psychological indicators, I'm not sure they would be all that helpful to begin with. Okay, well, it's very helpful to know that uh, other retail investors don't have that edge either. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, there is. It's really about can you interpret market signals at this point? Now, I mean, you go some places like Europe. They're 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 at least attempting to make more of a, a concerted effort to understand some of these esoteric financial arrangements, like securities, uh, what do they call SFT, secured funding transactions. So they're looking at repo. 
Um, but it's it's at a snail's pace. There's really no urgency to doing it, even though time and again, whenever they write up their paper saying that we're looking at these things, they always say, hey, the, the potential for problem here is obviously huge and nobody knows about this stuff. So maybe we should look at it. But yet, you know, it takes them a decade just to start a, a pilot programs. So data deficiency is a huge, huge problem. Jeff, did you catch that? Mr. Tom said that he listens to the show with his wife. It's possible that as we're on in the background, as they're making sweet love, how does that make you feel, Jeff? You know what? Never mind. Never mind. Don't answer that question. Let's okay. instead, but we're, along the we're same deviating lines, it. We're, we're getting way off topic here. Well, let me add somebody here else. I got Mr. David Locke known on Twitter as at Old Mammoth 69. I don't know why he picked those last two numbers. Maybe he was born in 69. We'll find out. Or maybe he's got a financial question. We could be bringing life into the world, Jeff. Our show, Mr. Tom, his wife. You think about it, Jeff. I think that's way too deep for me. Let's see, we're having difficulty connecting to Mr. David. Mm. All right, we'll, we'll find someone else. Who's next? Let's go to Igor. Igor Rutkowski on Twitter as at Igor Rut. Beautiful name. I, hi, I was expecting you to be better at Polish pronunciation, Emil. <laughs> I was expecting that too. Disappointed. Um, I, Igor, I have, tell us, how do you pronounce it properly? Rutkowski. Oh. I am ashamed. Uh, I wanted to ask about seasonality, because typically liquidity problems peak at the end of quarters, especially first and the third quarter, like March, September, sometimes in August. And this year, the, there seems to be very little easing after we went to the next quarter. Uh, I mean, the dollar is basically still uh, rising uh, in, into April. Um, the yield is not improving. The yield curve is not improving. Um, is there any significance significance in this seasoning, or uh, this is just an unimportant uh, timing of events? I, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, Igor, because one of the things we always talk about is that seasonality, especially as you pointed out. There's the one in September. But also the its little brother, its lesser known or lesser well known brother in March, and it's funny that all the big fireworks of the of the recent past. When did they happen? Right in that same window, you know, early March to middle of March, everything seemed to be going haywire. Which I mean, everybody blamed on Russia, Ukraine, and uncertainty, oil prices, all that stuff. But even oil got liquidated, absolutely liquidated from its high in or the first week of March down into the middle part of March, and. It's, I think what you're saying and what you're, what you're observing is absolutely the case in that we had that, that seasonal low point combined with a huge rush of risk aversion for any number of reasons. And we're sort of living in the aftermath, the ripples of disaster, the ripples of, of monetary illiquidity around the world are kind of sticking around with us. As you pointed out, it's not just the U.S. dollar. It's any number of indications. The yield curve is still modestly inverted. The euro dollar futures curve is heavily inverted. Swap spreads haven't moved. Uh, any number of things that tell us that whatever happened in March because of that seasonal low point, um, it's it's sort of it didn't just go away. It didn't just uh, disappear. It sort of moved on into another phase. Thank you, Igor. All right. How about another question, Jeff? It looks like Johan is a speaker. Johan, you're on mute right now, but you've been selected as a speaker. Why don't you join in and tell us where you're calling from? 
Yes, I'm uh, calling from Austria, actually. And uh, yeah, and I have a question. No Austrian, but from Austria. And on the street, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so I have a question uh, regarding the yen, who everybody's talking about right now at the moment, and about the collapse of the yen. And we all read about uh, those narratives about why the yen is collapsing, its yield curve control, and all this kind of stuff. But obviously, I was reading all those many articles about Tokyo being a Eurodollar redistribution hub. And uh, maybe there is some kind of connection between this, between uh, China having to sell its treasuries to make up for the drop in reserves and uh, all those uh, financial flows that are like going into reverse in China. And maybe there is something more about this uh, thing than what we're all reading about, uh, you know, uh, yield curve control. And uh, yeah, the widow make a trade that finally is uh, not making widows anymore. <laughs> and yeah, so that's my question. And thanks a lot. You re literally changed lives uh, with uh, your work. And uh, that's all I want to say. Thanks a lot. That's actually a great question. Emil, do you want to take it or do you want me to do it? Forgive me, Jeff. I was playing the role of producer and I yeah, missed I everything except the part where he said that I was changing people's lives, which I'm not surprised by. Or no, he was saying our show is. All right, Jeff, you go ahead. You, t you answer. Okay. And I think, no, it's a great question because obviously the end's a big topic of conversations, as is the JGB market where the Bank of Japan has said, hey, we're going to start buying Japanese government bonds because we can't let it go above 25 basis points. It actually used to be 20, but now, there's, now they're saying it's 25 basis points and we'll do unlimited operations to make sure it stays under. And it seems like the old idea that they're printing money, therefore the currency goes down. But the, the weakness in the end predates all of that stuff. And I think... Uh, well, Mr. Edelman, you've got it exactly right in that there's more to this story than we're being led to believe. And it does have it does have a lot to do with the Japanese bank exposure to China via their euro dollar redistribution. And so you can sort of think about it uh, from this perspective of Tokyo banks getting hit on both sides. Maybe you have risk aversions. Therefore, you have reluctance in other euro dollar banks in doing what are essentially collateralized currency swaps with them, since Japanese banks love to put up either uh, Japan yen reserves or JGBs, U.S. treasuries that they have access to in their own portfolios, or in a swap arrangement with the Bank of Japan as collateral to do swaps, which then get swapped further into China. And so if you're, say, just a bank around uh, the Cayman Islands, for example, and you know that the bank that you've been doing sort of financial arrangement in U.S. dollars with in Tokyo is heavily exposed to redistributing those dollars as well as maturity transformation of those dollars into China. That means suddenly the Japanese banks that you're doing business with are a hell of a lot more risky than you thought they were when you started doing business with them. And so in one respect, demand a much higher risk premium in order to continue doing business with them which can work out in a lot of ways, does work out, not just with the Japanese yen, to them having to pay you more to, to continue to secure and roll over dollar funding, which means a fall in currency against the U.S. dollar. So I think it's a bit more complicated that when you get into the plumbing and some of the individual transactions, especially the individual banks. But the general overview, I think, with the yen is that very simple and oversimplified terms, Japanese banks are heavily exposed to China at a period when everybody's looking at China with, uh, with quite reasonable suspicion. Hey, Jeff. We're going to go to the area of the South Pacific as soon as I can figure out how to get Abraham on the line, which is, of course, reestablished. There we go. Hey, Abraham, yeah. where are you calling from? I'm calling from um, the bottom of New Zealand, in the South Island of New Zealand. Love it. Yeah, um, oh, this is a great question, and I, I am on that path. Um, I was going to ask you, um, 
Yeah, the Japan, the the, the Japanese dollar is also um, crashing against gold, um, and China has now is now buying oil from Saudi with yen, and so and Russia is also demanding payment of rubles uh, for its gas and oil. Um, and we're seeing a little bit of destruction of the the US dollar, but the US dollar is uh, strengthening as as people are looking to go into into cash, which is liquidity. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on this? And does that also tie? Because like, Japan also needs uh, energy, and you know that also could tie into why it is crashing. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Jeff? Yeah, there's definitely – I mean, look, you look at the Japanese trade numbers, for example. Their imports were up 30-some percent year over year in uh, – what was it, February? Uh, but in real terms, they were actually down slightly, and uh, most of that was with Oceana. Um, so Japanese importing raw materials, including food, at exorbitant prices. I think their imports from Australia are up something ridiculous like 90 percent. So essentially, the Japanese economy is being robbed of its vitality, not that it had much to begin with, but robbed of whatever little vitality it had through commodity price increases and things like that. So it's trying to deal with what are essentially price imbalances globally. You can understand why Japan, but other countries around the world would seek other opportunities to mitigate what is essentially a heavy, a heavy dose of what will lead to demand destruction if left unchecked, if it hasn't already. So, you know, various countries doing bilateral arrangements, um, I think is, is I, I don't really find anything special about it because this is the kind of thing that always happens. And as you pointed out, if this was sort of a systemic uh, move away, you know, as everybody shouts every time this something like this is announced, whether it be the Petrowan back in 2018 or Saudi Arabia accepting other currencies, um, it, this, we're supposed to believe this is the end of the dollar. The dollar's finally reached its end. The world is moving into other directions when that's just simply not the case. Um, the euro dollar system actually encompasses more currency denominations, just the U.S. dollars, primarily U.S. dollar based and primarily the U.S. dollars on the other side of all of those transactions, including some of these ones we're hearing about with the yen. So even if they're paying for oil and yen, whoever's paying for it is usually a U.S. dollar swap on the other side of it. It's not going outside of the system and creating something new. It's just trying to 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 uh, work around and bypass certain problems within the system as it exists. And that's why you're seeing contrary to those shouts of the U S dollars days are numbered. It's going to crash as everybody is realizing and pointing out the U S dollars exchange value continues to go higher because you can't, you can't get outside of the system. You can't get outside of the Euro dollar system and move into something else because there is nothing else. At best, you can go something like uh, even the Russians who are demanding payment in rubles, they're still using the euro dollar infrastructure. And as you saw, I think there was a story on Bloomberg early. I don't maybe know. Maybe I'm the only one who saw it. But the story on Bloomberg early this week, late last week, where uh, a bunch of banks, they didn't say where, but I would guess they're probably Swiss banks, were helping oil, uh, Russian oil firms swap their coupon payments into, Euro, into uh, rubles using eurobond collateral denominated in U.S. dollars. So even as the Russians are supposedly getting rubles for payments, they're still using the, US dollars, the euro dollar system to do it. And so yeah, I mean, the, the system doesn't work very well, which forces fortress countries and companies and people around the world to try to deal with it as best they can. But there is no alternative to it. Jeff, some of the audience members have suggested that Abraham is not really from New Zealand, that he's an imposter. So I'm going to ask him a question now to see if he really is a Kiwi. Abraham, Name New Zealand's fourth most popular guitar-based digibongo acapella rap funk comedy folk duo. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I know Six Sixty is a really good um, New Zealand band. I have no idea who that may be. Um, that sounds like of one the of those chords. Flight of the Concords. I thought everyone knew Jermaine yeah. and Brett in New Zealand. Yeah. yeah that's okay. true. That's, yeah, that sounds like on one of those face. old capture questions from the early days of the internet where it's just impossible to answer just to, to identify you're a human. Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> right. 
I um I actually did used to be a shearer. My uh, handle there is Abe the Shearer, and I that's what I have done. I've shorn for 19 years as a shearer, um, and also studied financial markets. And my goal was actually to be to retire when I was 45 from shearing and be an investor. But I suffered a really bad injury. I blew a disc in my back and tore my Achilles, so I can't shear anymore. So um, I'm actually a, I actually study with Andy Tanner at the Cashflow Academy option trading um yeah and so through the rich dad radio show and reading rich dad poor dad and then reading benjamin graham um yeah so intelligent investor i mean you guys are really intelligent investors i listened to you through george gammon um the rebel capitalist show that's how come i know who you are and i think it's great you guys do a great job and yeah investors are all over the world we don't necessarily I literally live in Tiana, which is on the edge of the fjordland. Um, it's very beautiful here. The photo behind me is actually Lake Tiana, um, literally 200 metres from where I live. So uh, on my picture, it's my beautiful wife, Heidi. So, yeah, though well, I am thank you, Abraham. I, I hope you don't mind my inviting myself over in, uh, <laughs> when I finally get to New Zealand. I cannot wait yeah. to visit. I'll, I'll take you fishing. I'm, I'm a very I can't wait. Fisher. So, yeah, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Abraham. All right, Jeff, we don't have very much time left. Is there a question that you want to answer that no one asks? Otherwise, I'll go to another caller. Oh, let's do another caller. Okay. I'm going with the prettiest-looking headshot Twitter Spaces profile, and that is Airy. Ola, an adorable, attractive, sexy alien Martian thing. Thanks for the, the compliments. Um, uh, love your show, guys. And Emil, I appreciate you for uh, making economics erotic again. Um, it's fantastic. Thank you. So as we all know, uh, liquidity is you know extremely important. Uh, in the crypto space, there's some really interesting projects trying to solve some liquidity problems. Um, so one in particular I follow closely aggregates uh, fragmented liquidity in the system and uh, directs the liquidity to you know where the demand is highest, uh, which I think is uh, super interesting. And these projects make me think, you know, what would the uh, most ideal uh, system look like? So you know, if if Jeff Snyder were the ruler of earth and could replace the euro dollar system um, or, you know, make some changes to it. Uh, what would he do? Oh boy. Um, I would start from scratch. Just complete blank slate. Yeah. There comes a time when you look at things and you say, man, yeah, maybe this has gone way too far. I think, uh, the, I mean, in an ideal world, which obviously we don't live in, that I think that would be the best way to do it would be to start from scratch. Take some of the best ideas from historical examples and try to put them together into a workable, uh, workable, usable, effective, potentially sustainable model, which I'm not sure that's really even possible. So I think the real question isn't what would I do, it was what can we do? And that's a that's a maybe even a more complicated issue, but at least I think there is as you as you're pointing out, there are any number of groups who are actually working towards solving a monetary issue rather than leaving it up to so-called monetary agents and officials who have no interest in the monetary system whatsoever. And that's part of the I think talking about this in general terms, broad terms, where we would want to start. We want to refocus so much effort and energy from this pardon my language, psychology, horseshit, and get back in looking at the monetary system. Let's take a look at what the banking system is doing or even ask the question, which I think is what crypto investors and, and, and innovators are doing. Should we even have a bank-centered system to begin with? And my answer would be no. I think that's a Maybe there was a necessary evolutionary step going into private bank money. Maybe that needed to happen to solve Triffin's paradox way back when. But given the te technological advancements since then, I, I have no problem with a decentralized monetary arrangement that doesn't privilege banks in any number of ways, including information asymmetry. 
And I'm not really too fond of central banks, even if they were actually monetary, monetarily proficient. So again, just big picture terms. Um, I wouldn't have any issue. I wouldn't have any issues with a decentralized, say, blockchain-based, transparent and open system, but with some rules attached. There has to be some sort of constraints. Um, we can't we can't have convertibility. At least I don't believe there would be. Or at least currently, a way to to have full on convertibility in a digital format. But maybe there's ways that we can mimic the best parts of convertibility in a digital space. Which is a long long way of saying that there are answers available. I or at least they're not. Uh, they're they might become available down the road as technology, as interest, as capabilities and proficiencies continue to advance in those spaces. That's why I'm very optimistic about digital currencies, DeFi and things like that. Because in reality, I mean, as soon as blockchain proved itself, that's really, that's the day we, we realized or we knew that uh, we don't really need banks anymore because banks are nothing more than glorified book bookkeepers. Um, we don't need central bankers anymore because they don't do what the, they don't do the job that they're, they're advertised they're doing anyway. So it's really just about a, a imagining a world without them, which is it's going to be difficult to accomplish because the world is not ready to think in those terms just yet. Jeff, I'm going to ask a question from David Locke, Old Mammoth 69, which we couldn't get on the air before. And he has a big, long question. So, David, forgive me for not answering, asking all of them. But I'll ask the one in here. Jeff really doesn't offer a why for why the financial system broke in 2007. Short answer. <laughs> I, I know, think I short have. answer. The short answer is the fact that it was completely unstable. Eventually, it was going to break at some point. Uh, it was full of contradictions, full of inherent flaws, full of mistaken beliefs and myths, including the Greenspan put. And that just, it was a rickety, um, very shallow arrangement that it, it just, at some point, there was going to be a spark that led to eventual downfall. Let me get someone else in here who's been asking for a long time. Wow, now I know what real radio show hosts feel like when they can't get to everyone. Let me add Eddie Zacharian. And ladies and gentlemen, for all of you that have requested to speak and didn't get a chance to talk to Jeff, please send all your complaints and hate mail to me, not to Jeff on Twitter, at Emil Kalinowski. Eddie, you are live on the air. Where are you calling from? It's not as easy as a telephone. It should be. That's that's the whole point of this, right? Is the techno technological reach. You got to press this button. You got to press that button. All right. I'm going to go to another caller. Apologize. Oh, there he is. I was having some technical difficulties here. I guess uh, uh, I've been a listener for a while, you know, and I guess uh, my question in simple terms is um, how close are we to a devastating financial situation like we had in uh, 2008, uh, right? You know, if you were, I guess, to simply rate it from zero to 10, you know, and, and why. And uh, also my second question was, um, if um, you, hypothetically speaking, were given an opportunity to short the market, um, in what time period would you do it? Would you do it in right now, you know, in the in this next six months period or next six to 12 months period or maybe next year? Uh, that's kind of a, something that I wanted to hear from you for specifically the S&P 500. Obviously, I know we're talking about the, the US. Eddie, dollar, I appreciate the, the question, but Jeff is not going to answer specific investment advice questions, especially yeah, on sorry, timing and S&P yeah, 500, sure but we can answer like your that. first question. Sure. Yeah, that works. Appreciate it. Yeah, and I apologize. I mean, look, as a registered investment advisor, I just I'm not going to give advice over social media as much as I might want to help people out in, in, in their investments. It's just it's it's just not something that I can do, nor it's not something I would do because investing is a sort of a it's it's not sort of it actually is a a personal. It's not acting over 
um, social media in any respect, especially something, some format like this. So apologies in advance to everybody. I know people have questions about it and just I'm not in any position to answer them. So strictly about macroeconomics, monetary economics, um, you know, uh, generalized questions about certain asset classes. We can get into those. Um, and as far as your question about financial crises go, I would not expect anything like 2008 either recently or, or in the in the near future or any time because these kinds of things don't actually repeat. So we had a 2008 that uh, I think most people would associate with a high level of uh, or a frequent uh, uh, too many bank failures, banking crisis, that kind of a thing, which, you know, go back to March of 2020, we didn't have any of those things, yet we had a financial crisis anyway. So first thing is that if we do end up with really acute dollar shortage globally that turns out to be something bad i wouldn't expect it would be very i wouldn't expect it to be like 2008 at all in fact i've said repeatedly that i don't believe there'll be another lehman brother uh, at any time because most of the big banks have fortified their balance sheets which is kind of the the fact that they're all risk averse and only owning safe and liquid instruments I mean, their soul is sort of their sort of the purpose behind or the reason behind the fact that we can't get enough money into the system to begin with. So we're not going to have a 2008 style or a 2008 style or level of bank failures. But it doesn't mean that we can't have something like a liquidity crisis, maybe something along the lines of March 2020, where you see the junk bond credit market, for example, experience all sorts of difficulties that leads and spreads uh, leads into and spreads into other things where you have contagion through collateral that disrupts markets, that disrupts commerce, disrupts economies. And so, it, you know, it, it may not be the same sort of financial crisis as 2008 or even as March 2020 would be. And that's sort of the uh, what keeps you on your toes and what keeps you up at night is thinking about all the new ways that the system will invent uh, to all the new ways the system invents to fail. Jeff, we've been talking for an hour and I know the audience hates me because they want to hear more of you, but I have to think of what's in your best interest. And what's in your best interest is to read Chapter 7 of the International Monetary Cooperation since Bretton Woods book, authored by Mr. Harold James, published in 1996. It's 779 pages, Jeff, so we can't keep going all day long. Will we ever do this again, or was it a rolling failure, just a train crash? of an experience. It was for me because all these callers and listeners and requesting speak, it does not showing up on my Twitter feed. I will have to figure out the technical details, but I think, you know, these types of discussions we should do on a fairly regular basis because they're helpful, not just uh, having people, giving people the ability to ask us questions, but for you and I, Emil, it gives us the chance to interact with people, especially me, in a way that, you know, I, I don't interact much on social media or anywhere else. What are people thinking? What are people seeing? What are people doing? What questions, not just what questions do they have, but, you know, certain observations. So I, I, I think this is a, definitely a worthwhile effort. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. And if people have any comments, suggestions for how we can do a better job, how I can do a better job next time let me know at uh, direct messaging twitter at emil kalinowski jeff of course you can find at jeff snyder underscore aip and that is it jeff it's up to you now to shut it down and make sure you save the recording yeah hopefully i'll figure out how to do that too a uh, big thank you to everybody who attended of course obviously to you emil thank you for uh jumping in and playing producer at the last second and uh, making things run very smoothly. And I hope to see everybody again in the very near future. Take care.